Well, friends, would you turn with me, please, to the words that we read in Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. And reading again at verse 1. Nehemiah 5 and verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. A few weeks ago, my friend uh, Bill Ferguson, uh, who's a former pastor in Wick Baptist Church, uh, phoned me up. Uh, Bill phones me up every so often to go over various odds and ends. And as we were talking, he asked how my preaching was going. And I explained that I was preaching through the book of Nehemiah. And Bill touched on the fact that many pastors, many preachers, many ministers uh, seem to be preaching uh, through Nehemiah at present because it has so much to say uh, to our own situation. And we've already seen that in many ways as we've compared the Jewish exile and return from Babylon to the devastation of lockdown and its uh, aftermath. But in Nehemiah 5, we have something slightly different going on. We find Nehemiah responding to what we might call uh, a cost of living crisis. It's something that, again, we are all increasingly familiar with. So tonight we're going to be looking at this chapter under three headings. We're looking at the crisis, then the courage, and finally the conduct. First you have the crisis, and that's in verses 1 down to 5. Here Nehemiah focuses on the crisis that he faced. Nehemiah begins by noting the first complaint that he heard in verses 1 and 2. Uh, During World War II, uh, a number of countries adopted a practice known as total war. Uh, At its most basic, total war refers to the mobilising of all a country's resources for one reason and one reason only, that is the war effort. That is the main priority and everything else takes second place. And maybe some of you who lived during World War II will remember how the country was focused and fixated on the war effort. That was total war. And in many ways, Nehemiah had adopted a similar strategy back in chapter 4, where everything and everyone in Judah was concentrated on defending and rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. He had increased the working hours from sunrise to sunset. He had also forbidden the men from returning to their homes in the suburbs or the country. Nehemiah was looking for a radical, total commitment from the people to the rebuilding and the defence of Jerusalem. And there is now a great outcry coming from the people. They have many sons and daughters, that is, they have large families, and they've been unable to produce grain for their families, while everything and everyone is concentrated on the repair and the rebuilding and the defending of Jerusalem. And it's very interesting to note, isn't it, that the outcry comes from the people and their wives. You get the impression that many of the men didn't really know what was going on. They were so busy rebuilding and defending the walls of Jerusalem. They were far from home. They weren't allowed to return to their homes. But their wives are very aware of what's going on. They know what a struggle it is to feed their children. And so they come complaining to their husbands. And the husbands, along with their wives, come complaining to Nehemiah. So there's the first crisis. The second complaint is noted in verse 3. 
Another group emerged who are also seeking grain because they're experiencing a famine. The food is already in short supply. The famine has only increased the problem. And these people are now desperate. And in their desperation, they have had to mortgage their fields, their vineyards, their homes in order to buy grain. They don't have a daily wage coming in because all of their effort is concentrated on rebuilding and defending Jerusalem. Furthermore, the cost of living has risen due to this famine. And so the only way that these people can afford to buy food is by taking out a loan and using their home or using their field or using their vineyard as security. So they come complaining. And then you've got the third and most serious complaint in verses 4 and 5. The Persian kings at the time were very shrewd operators. They, they allowed the peoples whom they had conquered to worship their own gods, to live in their own lands. They were very different from the Babylonians in that respect, but they imposed severe taxes that would in effect cripple the people, cripple the population. And the people of Judah, we see, are struggling to pay these taxes. They've got no money in be- coming in because they're working on the defence and repair of Jerusalem. And so they're having to borrow money. And they're borrowing money from Jewish moneylenders to pay the king's tax on their own fields and their own vineyards. And this is where things begin to get serious. You know, it is incredible how people will always try to exploit the misery and the misfortune of others, those who are in need. It's happening in Ukraine right now. My best friend Graham was telling me a few days ago that there are a number of women who are coming out of Ukraine and they're being exploited and trafficked by the men in the countries around them. That's going on right now, this evening. Women being exploited, being trafficked for financial gain. And something very similar is going on in Nehemiah's day. Jewish loan sharks are willing to lend money to their fellow Jews to help them pay their taxes. But they would take the children of these people as slaves for lending them the money. Once the loan was repaid, the people could have their children back. But it was impossible to repay the loan. And so in verses 4 and 5, you've got the people saying, we're having to give our own children to our brothers to be exploited, to be used and abused, and we have got no way of paying them back. So they come complaining to Nehemiah. Friends, as we consider these opening verses, we can see that the greatest danger, the greatest crisis facing the Lord's people will often come from within. The greatest danger, the greatest crisis facing the Lord's people will often come from within. That is what we see in Nehemiah chapter 5. The people have survived the external threats coming from Sambalat and Tobiah and their henchmen back in chapter 4. But the air is now filled with complaints and accusations. It is filled with corruption and abuses of power so that there is this great outcry. Derek Thomas writes, there is deep and desperate trouble among the people of God. Brother is accusing brother. The kingdom of God is about to fall apart. Satan has shot an arrow right into the very core of the kingdom. He is dividing the people from one another and he is conquering. And friends, that is a very important lesson for us to take on board this evening. As we've said throughout this series, we are attempting to regroup and rebuild 
and reach out our community with the gospel after two years of lockdowns and restrictions. We, we want to see the Lord's gospel advancing. We want to see the Lord's kingdom expanding. We want to see the Lord's people flourishing. And the greatest danger, the greatest threat to that work, friends, is going to come from within. Derek Thomas writes, The church is always a knife edge away from division or conquering. Say that again. The church is always a knife edge away from division or conquering. Tonight, let's remember that the greatest danger to the high free church, the greatest threat to our work for the Lord, our witness for the Lord, isn't attack from Russia. It isn't Antichrist legislation coming from Holyrood. The greatest threat to the high free church, the greatest danger to our work and witness for the Lord, comes from within, from internal conflict that the devil loves to stir up. He loves to stir up conflict. Can I say that to you, office bearers, tonight? You're going to have a deacon's court tomorrow. You're going to be discussing the finances of the congregation. You're going to be discussing the projects and plans of the congregation. Don't think for one minute the devil's not going to be in that building. Can I say to you as a whole congregation, don't think for one minute that when we're trying to do anything for the Lord's cause and kingdom as a united people, that the devil's just going to shrug his shoulders and say, I'll leave them to it. No. He's always going to be operating quietly, seductively, behind the scenes. The greatest danger to the Lord's cause, the Lord's people, will come from within. Second, we have the courage. Look at verses 6 to 13. Here Nehemiah focuses on the courage that he showed. Verses 6 and 7, we see Nehemiah's reaction to the crisis. After hearing the complaints, Nehemiah becomes, verse 6, very angry. The prophet Amos, a number of years earlier, had made it clear that the Lord is angry when his people are taken advantage of by those within the community of faith. And Nehemiah is very angry when he sees that people within the community of faith are abusing those Jews who are living in Judah and around Jerusalem. But before Nehemiah does anything, he takes counsel within himself. Verse 7, he knows that the stakes are too high for him to act rashly. He knows that if he says the wrong thing, if he does the wrong thing, then the whole building project is going to collapse. And so he takes counsel within himself. He carefully mulls over and considers the issue. Then in verses 7 to 11, we move from Nehemiah's reaction to his rebuke. He begins by bringing an accusation against the nobles and the officials. Verses 7 and 8. He accuses them of exacting interest from their brothers as they gave out these loans, and he also accuses them of selling their Jewish brothers who had been bought back from slavery. And after hearing these charges, the nobles sit back and they do nothing. They can't answer. Nehemiah continues by giving his assessment of their behavior. Look at verse 9. He's very bold. He's very blunt as he tells them that the thing that they have been doing is not good. Even worse, he says, they have been failing to walk in the fear of God, which has opened them up to the taunts of their enemies, the taunts of the nations around them. But Nehemiah isn't finished. As he goes on to make a startling admission, look at verse 10. I don't know if you remember a few years ago, we had Jeremy McCoy from Deeside Fellowship preaching with us 
at the Christian conference. And afterward, he, he did a question and answer testimony session, and he spoke to us as a congregation about the time when he and his elders had to apologize to their congregation and admit to getting something wrong. And here's Nehemiah, and he's admitting to the people that he and his brothers have been getting it wrong. They too have been lending money to their fellow Jews. Now they have not been deliberately exploiting the people like the nobles and the officials have, but they've unknowingly, unwittingly, unintentionally been contributing to the problem, putting additional pressures on an already pressured people. And Nehemiah concludes by presenting the nobles and the officials with an appeal. Look at verses 10 and 11. He calls on them to abandon this practice of exacting interest on loans. And he calls on them in verse 11 to return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, the percentage of money, grain, wine and oil that you have been exacting from them. Nehemiah is appealing to the officials. He is calling on them to repent. He is calling on them to change direction, to change the course of action that they have been going down. He wants to see crystal, concrete, clear evidence of a change of behaviour. He is appealing to them. Then in verses 12 and 13, we see this response to Nehemiah's rebuke. The nobles and the officials respond to the rebuke in a very positive manner. Look at verse 12. They promise to restore the property and possessions of the people. They promise not to demand anything more from the people. They promise to do what Nehemiah has said. They, they, they take Nehemiah's rebuke in a very good spirit, in the spirit in which it had been given. We then see Nehemiah's response to the nobles' response in verses 12 and 13. He, he calls for the priests. And he makes sure that the promises that the nobles and the officials have made are now upgraded into oaths, into vows in the presence of the priests. And after doing that, he engages in a very strange act. He shakes the folds of his garment, he empties his pockets out, and he says in verse 13, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labour who does not keep this promise. He is calling down the Lord's judgment. He is invoking the Lord's curse if the people do not keep their promise, if they do not keep their vow, if they do not keep their oath that they have sworn in the presence of the priests. And all the assembly respond to what has just taken place by saying in verse 13, Amen. They praise the Lord while the nobles and the officials do as they had promised. Friends, as we consider these verses, we are being reminded that there are times when the Lord's people need to have the courage to confront the sins of their brothers and sisters in Christ. There are times when the Lord's people need to have courage to confront the sins of their brothers and sisters in Christ. That is what we see in Nehemiah 5. Nehemiah is being made aware of the crisis that is brewing among the Lord's people that is threatening to dismantle and diminish the Lord's cause and he takes action. He confronts and he calls out the people who are responsible. Warren Wearsby makes the observation that Nehemiah wasn't a politician who did the popular thing, nor was he a diplomat who did the safe thing. He was a true leader who did the right thing. And again, that is a very important lesson for ourselves to take on board this evening. 
The Christian life requires courage. And it requires courage to confront our brothers and sisters in Christ. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, you find the crucified, risen, reigning, ascended Lord Jesus Christ confronting the churches in Asia and saying to them, I have this against you. He is rebuking their gospel-denying conduct. And then throughout the New Testament, you've got the Apostle Paul And he confronts Peter, and he confronts the church in Corinth, and he confronts the church in Galatia over their gospel-denying conduct. Can I say to you tonight, friend, that if you are concerned about the conduct of a Christian brother or sister, if you believe that they are doing something that is undermining their witness, that is doing damage to the Lord's cause and the Lord's people, then it is imperative that you lovingly confront and challenge them. A few years ago, I had a rotten tooth and I left it and I left it and I left it. And you know what happened? It magically healed. Well, no, it didn't. It, It got worse and worse and worse until what was once going to be a minor filling, eventually the tooth had to be removed. And if you ever look in the back of my mouth, and none of you are going to want to go near my mouth at this present time, if you ever look in the back of my mouth, you'll just see this gaping hole where this tooth had been. You know, sometimes we can bury our heads in the sand over the gospel-denying conduct of a Christian brother, a Christian sister. We, We leave them, and we leave them, and we leave them, but the issue doesn't go away. It tends to get progressively worse until that person either makes a shipwreck of their faith or they do untold damage to the Lord's people, the Lord's cause. Tonight, friends, let's remember that the Lord's people need to have courage. They need to have courage to lovingly confront the gospel-denying behavior of their Christian brothers and sisters. Maybe tonight the Lord is calling you to do this in the days that lie ahead. Maybe you're going to have to go up to a friend, a family member, someone from this congregation, and you're going to have to just say to them, I love you, but what you're doing isn't right. Or maybe you'll have to say to them, I love you, but what you've not been doing isn't right. You are denying the fact that Christ has redeemed you. You are denying the fact that Christ has saved you. You are denying the fact that Christ has touched you with his grace by his behaviour. Don't leave it to myself. Don't leave it to Chris. Don't leave it to another member of the Kirk session. You all have a responsibility to go up to your brothers and sisters in Christ when you're concerned and say, can we just have a chat? I'm not doing this to have a go. I'm doing this because I love you. I'm doing this because I'm concerned about you. I'm doing this because I don't want you to do further harm to yourself or the Lord's people or the Lord's cause. Third and finally, we come to the conduct, verses 14 down to 19. Here Nehemiah focuses on the conduct that he himself exemplified. Verses 14 and 15, we see the contrast. Nehemiah begins by speaking about his appointment as governor. Look at verse 14. He was appointed governor in the land of Judah in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. 
He remained as governor for 12 years until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes. In other words, he governed Judah from 445 to 433 BC. And in all that time, he says, he and his brothers didn't eat the food allowance of the governor. Nehemiah continues by contrasting his time in office with his predecessors. Look at verse 15. The former governors had laid heavy burdens on the people. This was displayed in the way that they took a daily ration of 40 shekels of silver from the people. Now remember, the people are being taxed heavily by the Persian king. And these governors are coming along and they're taking even more money from them, keeping that for themselves. Meanwhile, the servants of these governors were lording it over the people. But Nehemiah is different. He stands in sharp contrast to his predecessors. He says he refused to behave that way. And he refused to behave that way. Why? Look at verse 15. Because he feared God. Nehemiah knew that he wasn't simply accountable to the king of Persia. He knew that he was ultimately accountable to the God of heaven. Then in verses 16 to 19, Nehemiah highlights his conduct as governor. He draws attention to his priority. Look at verse 16. Back in chapters 1 and 2, we saw Nehemiah's burden for the welfare of the Lord's people, his burden for the welfare of the Lord's cause. He longed to see Jerusalem being rebuilt, the walls and gates repaired. And he returns to Judah for one reason and one reason only, to to rebuild the city. And now he writes about persevering in the work on the wall and his refusal to acquire any land. Nehemiah didn't care about prospering from the work. He cared about seeing the work prospering. That was his priority. He's not going to prosper from the Lord's work. He wants to see the Lord's work prosper. That's his priority. Nehemiah goes on to draw attention to his provision. Look at verses 17 and 18. As the Persian appointed governor, he was expected to host lavish feasts. And here he notes that he would bring 150 men to his table. He's got Jewish officials coming. He's got people from the nations coming. And he would feed them. It's amazing. He says he would feed them with an ox, with six choice sheep, with birds, and with an abundance of wine. But what stands out is that he paid for all this himself. He's not like so many MPs and MSPs who claim everything off their expenses forms. You know the kind who will take a person out for coffee, put it down on their expenses sheet. They'll buy a pen from the local news agent, put it down on their expenses sheet. Not Nehemiah. Nehemiah says that he prepared and provided these feasts for himself at his own expense because he saw the burden on the people. And he closes by drawing attention to his prayer. Look at verse 19. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. As Nehemiah writes his memoirs, he's making it clear that he didn't do any of this for charitable reasons. He didn't do any of this for man's recognition. Nehemiah doesn't want newspaper headlines being published. He doesn't want TV programs being produced. He doesn't want books to be written about his kindly, generous heart. Nehemiah simply wants the Lord to remember him. He simply wants to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, friends, as we consider these verses, we're being reminded that the fear of God should shape our character. The fear of God should shape our conduct. That is what we see in Nehemiah 5. 
Nehemiah conducted himself in public and in private in a way that was different. In a way that stood out from previous governors. And the reason why he was like this was because he feared God. Again, quoting Derek Thomas, Nehemiah is a man who lived with God before him every day. He lived in the fear of God. He lived reverencing God. He lived with God before his eyes, with God before his heart, with God in his affections. For Nehemiah, God was real. He was more than just a philosophical principle. He was more than just something to argue about over the water cooler on a Monday morning. God was real to him. God filled his vision. God filled his life. He understood that there was a coming day when he would have to give an account before God. And that is such an important lesson for us this evening. Friends, it is a great tragedy, and you know this yourselves, when those professing to be the Lord's people behave in a way that is no different to the world around them, sometimes even worse, when they're known more for their corruption than their Christ, their lies than their Lord, their gossip than their gospel, their sleaze than their saviour. A few weeks ago, we had Jodo preaching at our preparatory service. And if you remember, he spoke about the importance of living quorum Deo. Living before the face of God. Living in the fear of the Lord. Can you just imagine, just for a minute, what it would be like if every professing Christian living in Stornoway, living in Lewis, living in Scotland living in the United Kingdom, lived publicly and privately in the fear of God. If that is what shaped their conduct. If that is what shaped their conduct in the home. If that is what shaped their conduct in the workplace. If that is what shaped their conduct in the school. If that is what shaped their conduct on a Friday or Saturday night if that is what shaped their conduct in the church, if that is what shaped their conduct in the courts of the church, the fear of the Lord. Well, tonight as we attempt to regroup, rebuild, reach out to our community with the gospel as individuals and as a congregation, let's do so quorum Deo. Not in the fear of man. Not out of a spirit or desire to man please. But rather let's regroup. Rebuild. Reach out to our community with the gospel. In the fear of the Lord. With the Lord at the very centre. Amen.